Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 15, we'll be starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 32. Hear God's Word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, And twisted together a crown of thorns. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Are you afraid? What are you afraid of? Afraid of death? Are you afraid of people finding out the truth is about you? Are you afraid of your sin and its consequences? I don't know how you come to hear God's word this morning, 
but we know that his word is powerful. And we come to a passage today that carries so much of the heart of the gospel that I pray that we would leave changed. How do I do justice to one of the greatest, excuse me, to the greatest example of love in all of history? Mark has been building the story, building this case to show us who is this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And he's been showing us passage by passage that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is divine. And we come now to a passage that frankly makes sense of why so many people misunderstood. How could the true Son of God, one with all authority, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is to come and reign, how could he die such a humiliating death? We see in our passage today, things are not always what they seem. The world sees power in one way, and when I say power, you have images that pop into your head. But what we see in Mark 15 is the ultimate example of God choosing what is foolish to the world to shame what the world calls wise. God using what the world calls weak to shame what they think is strong. And we see the true power of God at work. The king was humiliated so that his, he and his people might be glorified. We're going to look at this truth in three parts today. We're going to look at Jesus' disgrace first. Jesus' disgrace. And then the second, we're going to look at Jesus delivered over. And then third, we're going to look at the Jews' disbelief. Let's look first at Jesus' disgrace. In last week's passage, which was just the night before in the story, Jesus underwent an unjust trial by the Jewish leaders who were supposed to be the upholders of scriptural justice. Instead, it was a sham of a trial. And this week, Jesus was Having been unjustly charged, he was bound and led away and betrayed into the hands of a Gentile leader, Pilate, who operates under the godless Roman law. He's accused by the Jewish leaders. Jesus is accused by the Jewish leaders of blasphemy, which they deem worthy of death. But under Roman power, they had no authority to enact the death penalty. So they had to go to the authority above them, to Pilate, to try to get Jesus killed. And they knew that if they told Pilate, this guy is blaspheming against our God, Pilate would not see the need to put him to death. So what do they tell him? We can imply, as Pilate comes and says, are you the king of the Jews? That the chief priests had come to the governor and said, this man claims to be the king of the Jews. That seems problematic to a governor, especially a governor like Pilate, who never really climbed very high in his tenure as a governor in, under the Roman Empire. He was a cruel man. He seemed rather incompetent in a lot of ways. And so if he heard that there was a guy coming in under his territory claiming to be king, that might bother Pilate to the point where maybe he would choose to put this Jesus, this king of the Jews, to death. And so that is what the chief priests and the scribes brought to Pilate. And they brought other things as well saying that Jesus was seeking to establish his own kingdom against the Romans and that he was guilty of treason. Because that idea of a messianic challenger, it had gathered momentum and military connotations over the prior century. And again, with Pilate's record of weakness, he probably would want to see that nipped in the bud. 
And so when Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, you have said so. Now, some people say this is a definite yes. I'm not sure that it is. It contrasts where he did give a definite yes last week. Last night, as he was before the chief priests and scribes, he says, I am and you will see the son of God, the son of man coming on the clouds. This is a very different statement. This statement is more ambiguous because Jesus can't affirm those military connotations with which Pilate is asking this question. But he also cannot deny the reality that he is the eternal king of the Jews and of all the world who is about to be enthroned upon the cross. And as for the other accusations, which Mark does not tell us, Jesus remains silent again, like a sheep before its shears is silent in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Let's continue to look at this disgrace that Jesus was facing, an unjust trial, and now accusations. And, and, now, and then he was also surrendered to death in exchange for an insurrectionist named Barabbas. Now, it's interesting to me, the name Barabbas literally meant son of Abba, son of the father. It was a common name. And we shouldn't read too much into it, but the true son of the true heavenly father is being traded now for a rebel who was associated with murderers and insurrection. And the crowd was manipulated by the envious religious leaders to use their public voice against Jesus, which forced Pilate in his insecurity as an incompetent governor, forcing him to eventually do what was best for him to satisfy the people and to crucify Jesus. Even though he was as of yet still unconvinced that Jesus was truly treasonous, or a true threat to the Roman government. From other Gospels, you remember that Pilate's wife strongly suggested that he have nothing to do with this man, and Pilate also literally washed his hands in an attempt to wash Jesus' blood from his responsibility. And Jesus' disgrace plunged even deeper when he was scourged like a criminal, flogged. Mark spares us details he doesn't give gruesome details, and neither will I, but this flogging was brutal. There was no limit to the number of lashes. It was a, a leather whip that had pieces of metal or bone in it, ripping his skin. This scourging, this, this flogging is how criminals were treated. It was the, the pre-beating before the crucifixion. And during all this, he was mocked with false worship. I hope that that bothers your soul. That the true king was receiving mocking worship. Purple cloak, crown of thorns, salutes, hail king of the Jews. And they struck his head, his head that was adorned with the crown of thorns, with the reed. And they spat on him and they knelt down in so-called homage to him. Mark is reminding us that although they did it mockingly, this really is the king. This is the one that they could not see, but this is the true king before them. Then they stripped him of his robe and they shamed him in public and they dressed him in his own clothes and then they crucified him. Now this crucifixion was notorious in that ancient world as a cruel punishment. It included tying and nailing a person to a wooden cross, standing them up as a spectacle of shame and leaving them there until dead. And Jesus' mockery continued. 
When you think things can't get any lower, when the God of the universe couldn't be humiliated any lower than this, than even the guilty criminals on either side of him, who you think would have some sympathy for a fellow man upon a cross, even they reviled him. Jesus endured this disgrace for you and for me. Jesus was then, not in a chronological sense, but in in a theological sense, he was here delivered over. Mark tells us he was delivered over to Pilate. And then he was delivered over to be crucified. Yes, he was delivered over. That's the same word that is described to say Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas delivered over Jesus. And yes, he was delivered over to Pilate. But underlying all this, it's important that we remember Jesus delivered over his own life. And Jesus did this willingly. This was a part of the eternal covenant of redemption to save lost souls, to save anyone who believes in Jesus. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. This is a part, the crucial center of redemption. Galatians 2.20 says that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The eternal Son of God stepped out of his throne room in heaven. He made himself nothing and became like us. And he gave himself not just to come live on this earth and to know this flesh for a time. He took it on for eternity. And in that, he gave himself up for this kind of pain and suffering. He delivered himself up as the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read to you a few verses. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 7. So this... this this punishment for sins was, it was anticipated, prophesied. And listen to how it's put in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You can see how Christ fulfilled this to the letter. But why all this? Why was all this necessary? What was the reason for such deep humiliation? We know this academically, but do we know this in our heart? The reason for all this is sin. The wages of sin is death. Now, brief illustration here. Um, last week, Anjanette was driving down the road, and um, another car decided to pull into her lane. And it kind of nipped the bumper of Anjanette's car. How much does it cost to fix that? 
Depends on the impact. Uh, we haven't gotten the estimate yet. Don't know. It's very small. Uh, it's, it's, it, it could have been a lot worse. More damage, more, more cost. If the bill comes back and is $10,000, then there's more damage done than we realized. If this is the bill for sin, how grievous our offense. How deep and damaging and damning is our sin. Be offended. In your humanity, I hope you are offended when I say your sin is so bad. The guilt that you've received from the first Adam is damning. Your offenses against God are so rank with cosmic stench. Your heart toward your family and toward your friends is so dark. Your actions behind closed doors so vile that the pure, perfect brilliance of Jesus, the God-man, The Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, had to be dragged through utter humiliating filth and death. And the wrath of God, the eternal God, poured out on him, on that perfect spotless lamb, to pay for what you have done. And I'm right there with you. Our sins are that bad. Our culture likes to talk about minimizing sin. It's not that big a deal. Just brush over it. Brush it under the rug. The Puritans are famous for the phrase, the sinfulness of sin. Do we believe that sin is that bad? It is not a little thing. See the magnitude of sin and what Christ endured because the wrath deserved for your sin and for my sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross on that day. The flogging, the beating, the mockery. These only begin to get at what Christ endured. They hint at God's wrath being poured out on Jesus because next week we're going to see the full extent of that suffering as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that lies the greatest suffering ever. And that is the only true payment that could ever be made to cover your sin. Yet in all this, we have to remember Jesus was not purely the victim. He's the victor. Jesus wins in what he is doing. Because Isaiah 53, as we read a moment ago, later it provides hope. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, listen what's going to happen through the anguish of Jesus' soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He was victor in that he accounted many people to be righteous. If this incredible payment has been made for your sin by Jesus that payment cannot and will not be demanded again of you. If you are in Jesus, all the penalty for your sin is done. And it will not be demanded of you. In this, we see his victory because he redeemed sinners. You know Jesus has multiple times throughout the book told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem They're going to kill me. But then he always says, and on the third day I will rise. 
Jesus said that the Son of Man would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Check. And they will condemn him to death. Check. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. Check. And they will mock him. Check. And spit on him. Check. And flog him. Check. And kill him. And listen to how he finishes. After three days, he will rise. This is not just a cool trick to die and to rise again. This is the power of redemption. Jesus in his suffering, having having taken on the guilt of sin, kills his and our enemy. And he kills sin and death. And when he rose on the third day, there was no question that Jesus indeed accomplished salvation, just like he said, it is finished. Sinners redeemed. The only way, the only truth, the only life has prevailed against the gates of hell. He has taken the wrath of God, poured out against sin. A little side note here. It's interesting that three times with almost direct quotes, Psalm 22 comes into play here in this passage. Last week's and this week's together. Excuse me, this week's and next week's together. Um, Mark 15, 24 says that they cast lots to divide up Jesus's clothes. And David says in Psalm 22, 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Mark 15, 29 says that the passers-by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads. David says in Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. And then next week, in Mark 15, 34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as David cried out in the first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does this matter? Well, by claiming, by associating these few verses with what is going on, we're associating the whole psalm with what's going on. If somebody says in jest, Yeah, let me just hop on Air Force One, I'll be right over, you might respond, Oh, sure thing, President. Invite me to the White House for dinner sometime. What's happening here? Claiming one element of such a powerful, specific position implies all the privileges that come with it. And Jesus quotes not just one, but three times. Three times Psalm 22 is fulfilled. This psalm about King David. And in this, Jesus claims all the power and associations that come with being the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant in Psalm 22. And here are just a few examples of what is, how we understand the richness of what is happening in Christ offering himself. First, he is like the righteous David who suffered on behalf of those in Israel who were righteous. Just like Jesus suffered vicariously for those who look to him in faith. Also, the supreme rule of God is on display in Psalm 22 through his covenant kingship, through David and through his descendants. And it's affirmed despite the fact that there is suffering. David was still king despite the difficulties he faced. Christ is still king despite the difficulties he is facing. And three, it anticipates the conversion of the nations. Because in Psalm 22, it says that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Jesus is the king of the Jews and Jesus is the king of the world. 
So we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this Davidic king whose experiences anticipated Jesus. He's the long-awaited king of Israel. He's the final king from the line of David whose kingdom lasts forever. And he's the righteous sufferer on behalf of all those who are in the true Israel in Christ. He is the supreme ruler over even sin as he is on the cross. And he is the one to whom the nations will look and be saved. And we start to see it even in this passage. Simon of Cyrene, we'll get to him in just a moment, from Africa. The Roman soldier in our next week's passage will say, you, this was the Son of God. These professions coming from the nations. And so that we see that Jesus, in summary here, delivered himself over powerfully and effectively made payment for sin. And with authority, he's triumphing here as the victorious king. Redeeming sinners. And I think it's important for us to look now at how the Jews responded. What's the response to all this going on? If you were to see this happening in front of you, what would your response be? The crowd cries out, crucify him. That word cries out is very specifically used in Mark so far in the book of Mark. What is cried out is almost every single time a profession of the person of Christ as the Son of God, as the Son of the Most High God, the Father of the child who had died cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is called the Son of David. As the blind man cried out on the roadside, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as he came up to Jerusalem, those who watched were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You would think that with a mounting vision of who Christ is, that as he comes to this point, he would be exalted even higher as a son of God. But they cry out instead, crucify him. This crowd has been swayed by the manipulative religious leaders and they too are blind. They lack faith. They can't see the person of Jesus. What about those religious leaders though? They, you notice at the end of the passage, ask for a sign. They're demanding Jesus to come down from the cross in order to believe because they, like we do naturally, expect that power looks very different than how God designed power to be at work in redemption. They said he should save himself they miss the fact that he is saving others. This is the plan of redemption. This is the cup that Jesus submitted himself to. This is what he delivered himself over for. This is his willful denial of himself for the good of another. This is the prime example in all the world of love, laying down his life for his friends. They don't see Jesus for who he is. They want to see some sign that meets their criteria. They don't see Christ for who he truly is. He's an annoyance. He's an interruption. He's a burr under their saddle, a challenge to their control over their lives. And to them, the Christ crucified is a stumbling block, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. But it is precisely this Savior hanging on the cross in whom we place our faith. It is precisely the suffering servant in whom we trust. And that 
is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. There is a different response here. It comes from Simon the Cyrene. From Cyrene. He's not a Jew. He's from the northern coast of Africa. He is a representative of the nations coming into the true Israel by Christ right here. And he's described in our passage, verse 21, as the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know, we hear about Rufus again later. You may remember the book of Mark was likely written for an audience in Rome. And in the book of Romans, Paul mentions a man named Rufus. This Simon the Cyrene is probably the father of Alexander and Rufus. We don't know much about Alexander, but perhaps he too is in Rome with his brother. There's a legacy there that these men who are likely members or leaders of that church in Rome, they had a father who carried the cross of Christ. Simon's act then was not simply compulsion, though, of course, he was compelled here in verse 21. We see that he also had faith in this person of Jesus. He had faith in the suffering one when nobody else did. Remember, Jesus had said distinctly that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. And it appears here that Simon from Cyrene was the first person to ever so clearly follow in this discipleship with faith in the crucified Jesus. Because where were the 12? They're nowhere to be seen in these events. And he did it so literally with the cross of Jesus. After Jesus' flogging had been so brutal and left him unable to carry it himself. But Simon's sons believed too. And so we see the blessing that extends through believers to their children as God has covenanted to welcome the nations into Christ by faith. Now I ask you to Examine your heart and to think for a moment, what does any of this mean for you and for me? Start with this question. Can you look to the one who is shamed, hanging on the cross, having endured mockery and receiving scorn and say, that is my king. In that victory, he was conquering my real enemy, sin and death. Can you look at this example And say, he who knew no sin became my sin, so that I can become his righteousness. And forgive me, the word example isn't even helpful. This is the true accomplishment of our sin being paid for, so that we can become his righteousness. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you believe in other gods, or you don't believe in any gods, or you believe in the the things of this world, or if you're a functional atheist who lives on your own strength, even though you may profess to believe in Christ, let me ask you this. How do you expect to pay for your sins? Why do you think that you might be forgiven when you stand before God on that last day? Where did you receive the delusion that you can become good enough or spiritual enough to save yourself or valuable enough by the world's standards? What's the logic behind thinking that doing more good deeds than bad deeds will earn you a spot in heaven? Or, a prevalent one, being true to yourself. These are all the lies of Satan some of which the religious leaders and the crowd themselves believed would save them. On the other hand, why do we preach Christ crucified? Why is Christ crucified the central theme of this church 
and of every true believer in history. It's because there's no other name given by which we can be saved. There is no other power that can forgive your sin. There is no other king or kingdom or God or dream or record of good deeds that has any power to free you from the bondage of sin. Your sin will condemn you eternally unless by faith it was dealt with on that cross as Jesus suffered and died. And as he hung on that cross in mockery, he was ascending his throne in all spiritual power in heaven and on earth. And he wasn't just giving you a chance at being saved. He wasn't just giving you a chance at making your life better or becoming the best version of yourself. He wasn't just trying to help. He was doing it. He was actively and actually accomplishing in power salvation for anyone who looks to him in faith. They mocked him as king of the Jews, but he truly is king of all. They sarcastically robed him in purple and placed a crown of thorns on his head, but he was in that moment clothing himself with all power and authority over evil to judge wickedness. And by taking on the sin of all his people and by robing his people in his righteousness, Jesus was ascending to the head of the church and then to the right hand of the Father where he continues to reign supreme today and will for all eternity. And he will return in power. Who will your king be on that day? The one who suffered or the one that the world calls good? They hung him upon a cursed tree. But he was obliterating that curse for his people. Giving them life rather than death. Freeing them from the clutches of sin and death. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is where you can find freedom from that fear, freedom from your sin. This is where you can be healed. This is where you are made able to live in righteousness. In the life that Jesus gave on the cross, this is where the king's humiliation leads to your glorification. We do become like him in how we live today, little by little, but we will be fully like him when he returns in glory and we with him. This is the upside down message. In this upside down salvation, it is the humiliation of Jesus that is truly his exaltation and his victory over death, as it is the exaltation and victory he gives to anyone who trusts in him. I want to wrap up with one final behind the scenes look at what's going on with all of Jesus' disgrace. They say they bound Jesus. As Jesus was being bound, it was truly Satan who Jesus was binding. As Jesus was taken as guilty in exchange for Barabbas, so he was putting himself in the place of sinners like you and me. As Jesus was unjustly condemned as guilty of death, so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as Pilate used Jesus for his own self-promotion, Jesus gave himself up entirely. As Jesus was mocked, He gave the seat in the name of honor to his people. As Jesus was stripped, he clothed his sinners in righteousness. As Jesus was beaten, he lifts the head of the weary. As Jesus was taken outside the city as an outcast of God, as an outcast from the community. So you and I are welcomed in to intimate friendship with God and into community with his people. And as he was hung upon the tree, cursed, he removed our curse. As Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, one on his left and one on his right, you and I are numbered among the righteous who reign with the ascended Christ in glory. As Jesus was humbled, he was saving and glorifying his offspring. As Jesus died, 
he gave eternal life to whoever believes in him. Was Jesus beaten for you? Look to him in faith. Do you see how your sin required that payment of God himself? Do you see how your darkness of heart requires the spotless sacrifice of the eternal Lamb of God? Do you see how your endless self-justifications and explanations were taken upon him as he sat silent before his accusers for you? Then come, receive, and rest upon him. Receive this eternal life, this righteousness given to you, and fear no more. For your sin has been removed and paid for forever. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, what a message. What a good news that Jesus took upon him our sins that we might have his righteousness. Would this be our theme in how we speak and how we live? As Jesus killed sin on that day, would you be killing sin in our hearts to his glory for our good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.